I'm Dr. Robert Fox, a family physician and addiction medicine specialist working in a small town in BC. With gratitude, we acknowledge that the BC Centre on Substance Use is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and that the reach of our work touches the territories of all 198 First Nations in BC. We also note that the ongoing criminalization, institutionalization, and discrimination against people who use drugs disproportionately harms Indigenous peoples. Ending drug-related harms means addressing racism and colonialism. I'm Dr. Robert Fox, and welcome back for the second season of Addiction Practice Pod. This is the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. On this season of Addiction Practice Pod, you'll hear from rotating hosts with unique clinical perspectives. You'll also hear from David Ball, award-winning journalist and co-host of season one. The overdose crisis is affecting all parts of the country but the majority of research is focused on major cities like Vancouver and Toronto, and the majority of services are located there too. For clinicians in rural and remote locations, this sometimes means adapting and working differently to provide the best care for our patients that use drugs. Today, our guests will be joining us from across BC and Yukon. We'll hear perspectives from a research scientist, a nurse educator, and a harm reduction counselor. Be sure to check out our show notes for a list of research we cite and additional resources relating to substance use care in rural and remote contexts. Our first guest is Kate Hodgson, a nursing practice consultant with First Nations Health Authority. Tell me a little bit about the area you work in now, the community you're in and the land. Tell me a little bit about that. My current role is as a nursing practice consultant. I'm a member of the Four Directions team. That's a part of the First Nations Health Authority. And what our team does is we support communities and nurses with mental health, substance use, harm reduction, and reconciliation in nursing for Indigenous people. We support nursing practice as it relates to substance use and harm reduction in rural and remote settings. Right now, most of my work is supporting nurses to implement the new registered nursing and registered psychiatric nursing nurse prescribing of opiate agonist therapy, namely Suboxone right now. But previously, I worked as an outreach worker, um, an outreach nurse and clinical coordinator of the intensive case management team in Powell River. So much of my substance use and harm reduction experience can be attributed to the opportunities I've had to partner in Powell River with our community action team, with people with lived living experience, and 
We have a very strong team in Powell River, and we've been able to bring to light the recommendations of people with lived experience and develop things like a rural overdose prevention site and now recently a rural injectable opiate agonist therapy clinic. Some of our audience and myself, that concept of substance use nursing might be new to some of us. Can you explain more about that role and what it is? So really, I think there's a difference between urban substance use nursing and rural substance use nursing, first and foremost. Early in my career, I was given the very strong message that in order to be a good nurse, you needed to have urban experience, be able to consolidate your skills, even if that was for one or two years. Otherwise, you might not have the technique or knowledge to respond in crisis or respond to something serious. But Really, there was this message that to be a good rural substance use nurse, you needed urban specialty experience. And I think that that's not necessarily true. I think that rural substance use nursing is its own specific skill set because people that live in rural communities have their own unique set of needs. And a lot of that comes down to being flexible. Oftentimes we're doing things that are outside our quite restrictive job descriptions, or we might be doing one day more social work-like things or other times, maybe even more physician or nurse practitioner type things if we're doing referrals or that type of thing. Rural substance use nursing relies on that ability to be flexible and also to develop meaningful therapeutic relationships. If I was a nurse who was going to go to a community, maybe I've done my training in Vancouver or something, I'm going to go to a rural community, what would be some tips to help me adapt to better serve these communities? A tip that I would give someone is that no intervention is too small. Oftentimes, as rural substance use nurses, we can feel like we're driving people around quite often. And for some people, that can be a bit tiring. But these are very low cost and low risk interventions that create significant sense of safety. So giving someone a ride to the pharmacy or having coffee with someone weekly really engages people in care and helps them feel seen and feel heard. And if we're able to do these small tasks regularly for our most complex people, then those are going to have huge community outcomes. When we engage our our more complex people, we see changes like reduction in property crimes, because often only a few people in the community are engaging in property crimes. So when we do whatever it takes, like buying a meal or giving someone a ride, this really creates trust and and, and care retention and you see big community impacts. I love that. I've never heard that before. I love it. No intervention is too small. I love that. Thank you. What's something surprising that happened to you in the past year you've been in this role that you didn't get trained about or didn't think you'd have to deal with? I think the reality of nurse prescribing in rural communities, because, I mean, this is really where nurse prescribing is intended to be the most effective, is where you have low-density prescribers or low-density other practitioners being able to prescribe. So now we're relying on nurses to do this, you know, quite large responsibility of prescribing controlled substances. So I think... We've experienced working with nurses who are taking this on in rural communities is that many of them have never even supported someone in taking Suboxone, let alone prescribing it. The complexities of shifting to, to nurses rather than encouraging 
rural physicians and nurse practitioners to be prescribing oats is very daunting for many nurses. And they have a lot of questions about this. You know, they're like, why am I being the, the called upon? I have never even supported someone with Suboxone. And now I'm you know, have this responsibility to prescribe. So nurses are moving forward and engaging in it, but it's a very tall order. I think it's a great intervention, but it's almost like saying, okay, well, there's no obstetrician in the community that's willing to deliver babies. So, okay, nurses, now you're going to deliver the babies. But, you know, nurses haven't delivered babies since back in the dark ages, basically. And this is happening very rapidly. Are there a lot of nurses stepping forward and expressing interest? Yes, there are. A significant amount of nurses have come forward. Nurse prescribing does rely quite heavily on the program site to meet specific requirements to be able to support nurse prescribing. So more of the time in preparing the site is ensuring that nurses have access to the correct resources, online databases like PharmaNet, appropriate policy in place and that type of thing. So that's where a lot of the heavy work is. Nurse prescribing really hinges on team-based care. So ensuring that the nurses have access to housing resources, income support. If it's in a First Nation community, then access to traditional wellness and cultural healing. That's a big part of the work we do with nurses is ensuring that all those referral pathways and communication pathways are in place as well. Because just giving someone a medication or giving someone a Suboxone tablet isn't addressing the full picture of the issue. This is where nurse prescribing is very beneficial. It really leans into that natural knowledge of nurses as being sort of holistic care providers. That's a huge strength of it. Right. So a lot of what you have to do is in addition to making sure the physical facilities are there and their access to farming and the training is really make sure those the team is around them as well. And the pathway to access those teams, whether it's like you say, housing supports or pharmacists or whatever, you really so you must be doing a lot of team building and community engagement as you in your in this role. Is that right? Yes, a lot of capacity building. The other piece that nurses are often responsible for is the dispensing of the medications that they are prescribing. So our team also supports communities or health centers in acting like mini pharmacies, essentially. So securely storing oat, being distributed oat from a pharmacy in a larger community, and then dispensing oat to community members in a safe way. What's your vision for, let's say, five years down the road, if all goes well, what's your vision of what this could look like? I really hope to bring nurse prescribing into the virtual space in order to have equitable access to resources. Because when we have, let's say, a nursing position, when we bring that to one community, then there's often the question, well, how come we're not bringing those same resources to other communities across the province? So by engaging nurse prescribers in a virtual platform, then nurses can provide accessible service across the province. That's something that we would really like to explore. And then the other piece is recruiting nurses from other areas of nursing to be engaged in substance use care. So really trying to distribute that substance use care is fun, it's rewarding. By engaging folks that might be experiencing substance use, it really goes a long way. People can go wherever they go, they can receive good care, whether they use substances or not. I can just tell that when I, when you mentioned, like the passion just lights up. I can just tell how passionate you are and you're 
being 100% honest, this is fun. It, and I often tell people this myself, the addiction medicine is one of the most fulfilling parts of my practice. I assume it's going to be that way for nurses too. So thank you very much for, for joining us today and for having this conversation with us. I've learned a whole lot and I have a lot to think about as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was Kate Hodgson, a nursing practice consultant with First Nations Health Authority. Our next guest, Dr. Jeff Bardwell, is a research scientist with the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use. I'm a researcher who primarily does qualitative work, and I also do community-based research. And kind of like the short snapshot of that is that I don't simply just sit at home and come up with research questions on my own and what I think is like really important. It's really about meeting with community, finding out what are their priorities, what questions do they want to have included, what do they want to learn, and also incorporating those experiences throughout study. In terms of substance use research, I take more of, it's called like an ecological or like a holistic approach to substance use. So I don't look at it from like a brain disease model or looking at individual behaviors. It's more so looking at the larger context and how do those contexts impact drug use or the access of services. What I'm working on right now, there's a few different places that I'm doing work in British Columbia. So one is in Powell River and the Catholic region in general. And so that's looking at overdose prevention and access to substance use and harm reduction services in general. And so it's a more like a less of a targeted study. It's more so kind of general to figure out what's going on there because there's been no research there. So you got to start somewhere. So from some of the early insights you might have at this point, what are some insights you're getting about substance use treatment, addiction treatment in rural areas as compared to urban centers? I had published a paper with a physician in interior health about a lot of issues and a lot of unknowns, because if we look at guidelines that exist, so for example, like you have the injectable OAT guidelines, there's the BC guidelines, and there's also the national guidelines, but none of them, they don't mention a single thing about rural settings. So all these are kind of like these treatment guide or OUD treatment guidelines. They're all with this like outpatient model, like thinking about an urban setting where you have a hospital that has like addiction specialists who are trying novel things out. Like those things we kind of take for granted in Vancouver or in Victoria or in Toronto that's like one glaring thing where it's just like we have these guidelines, but, you know, most of Canada geographically is actually rural, right? Sure, there's lots of people in urban settings, but trying to like get at through our research, what are the specific issues that are affecting people? So one of the big issues you're seeing already, even before you've analyzed all the data, is accessibility can you think of any other key questions that we should be asking for future research into rural treatment of substance use or rural substance use? One is around like where you're living, does that impact your substance use? So if there's only one supportive housing building, like how's that impacting your use or, or your adherence to treatment or whatever it is? And then the other question around location about where you're living. Does the availability of services or the location of those services impact where you choose to live? Although knowing that choice is not always an easy 
thing, but also same similar for the location and availability of drugs, right? People need to buy drugs if they're using them, and that's something that they want to do, right? And then I think like we need to be Rather than having questions that are for everyone, within that, we need to be comparing the experiences of people who live in the center, in the like city, versus those who live in the outskirts, versus those who live on outskirts that are like islands, right? Because, you know, there are ferries going frequently, semi-frequently from Texada to Powell River, you know, you still have to take a ferry. So that's a question. And then another thing, and this is a big issue in a lot of rural and remote communities is how much drugs cost because we see the inflation of food prices the more remote you go but the same is actually also for drugs and then like other communities like looking at indigenous communities working with newcomers you know newcomers are might have different experiences and likely have different experiences in more white rural communities versus maybe a more multicultural urban setting So I think there's lots that needs to be done, and I'm happy to be a part of some of that, but there's definitely not enough. There's way more questions than there are answers, and this is something we really need to prioritize for all of substance use care in BC and elsewhere. One thing that I think is important in rural communities around research is I actually don't think quantitative research is helpful Because let's say there's only 10 people accessing your service. Well, you're not really going to be able to do like a statistical analysis of like, what's the relationship between gender and use of this service? Because it's just such a small number of people. Could you do use quantitative research to evaluate a particular intervention across BC? Yes, absolutely. Like you could have hundreds of people involved in a study like that. But when you're thinking about evaluating something that there might only be a handful of people doing qualitative interviews, I think is most beneficial. And it's because if you're doing more than one interview, let's say you do a baseline interview and then an interview a year later and another one a year later, you can track changes in people's behaviors, their motivations, understanding why they might have stopped using a service at a certain period of time and what what are the the factors that led to that. And I think that that's just, you're going to get more out of data like that in a smaller setting than you would from a quantitative one. That was Dr. Jeff Bardwell, a research scientist with the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use. Our last guest today is Jesse Whelan, who works as the Harm Reduction Counselor at Blood Ties Four Direction Center in Whitehorse. So how did a young man like yourself from Sarnia end up in the North and come to Blood Ties? How did that happen? Short answer is the Greyhound bus when that was still around, but long answer was just out seeking an adventure. And at the time, a ticket to Winnipeg or Whitehorse was the same price. So we thought, why not go all the way to Whitehorse? So a friend of mine and I came up and just ended up falling in love with the place. I had some friends, of course, struggling and some family members who were struggling with their substance use. And at the time, I didn't know what to do for them. And I didn't know how to talk to them, which I think is probably a common thing that people struggle with if they're caring for or supporting people who use drugs. And here we have a social work program. It's one of the few degree programs that are offered locally. So I went into that after one particular pretty devastating loss of a friend. It was kind of the impetus to to do something. So I went to school, got my social work degree and did one of my 
practicums with the Blood Ties for Direction Center back in 2017 and have been with them ever since. Blood Ties has its roots as an AIDS service organization. It was the AIDS Alliance Yukon started back in sometime in the 90s. In the early 2000s, they received extra funding and hepatitis C came under the mandate as well. So working with people who either have or are at risk of HIV or hepatitis C. At the time, the Yukon had the highest rates of hep C in Canada. The rates have come down because people have access to the cure here. But at the time, it was quite a big problem. Because the the cure and because of other needs in town, that uh, other gaps that weren't being filled, Blood Ties has evolved into more of a street outreach and harm reduction organization. We also see ourselves as a social justice organization. I would say it's not uncommon for our clients if they do get a chance to go down to Vancouver, they'll go down to the downtown east side and they'll get to see lots of family and friends that they haven't seen in months, sometimes years. I think there's a little community of Yukoners down there too, so... We have 14 nations in the Yukon, 14 distinct nations. Most of them are situated in one or two communities. So people who are able to access those connections, it uh, goes a long way for them to connect with whatever it is that they feel that they need in their road to either overcoming their substance use or at least minimizing the the problems that come with it. The fact that we have the community buy-in that we do goes so far because it means we can offer these services. It means that our programs are relatively well-funded, so it's nice that we're not having to worry that we're going to run out of supplies or something like that. We can make sure that we have what people who are accessing our services need. It means we've been able to increase our hours and staffing over the last few years. For example, one of the services is an outreach van. So it's a van that goes out seven nights a week. Just call the phone number and they'll go anywhere within city limits. And they have harm reduction equipment, hygiene, snacks, hot drinks, socks, gloves, things like that, clothing, or just somebody to talk to if that's what you need or if you need a referral. Even if it's a, a holiday Sunday, you can call them up between 5.30 and 9.30 and they'll come out and see you. That all comes back to that connection. If you don't know somebody, you know somebody that knows them, right? And so it's always easy to figure out how you're connected to that person and it kind of can help to jumpstart the relationship. Most nights there's a blood tie staff on the van. Uh, a few times a month there's somebody from FASI on the van. So not only does it more intimately link our organizations and help to really c- cement those partnerships, it also gives an opportunity for people within those organizations to go out and see the people that they've been working with. So if you know, there's somebody I haven't seen in a long time, then when I'm out on the van, I'll be looking for them or asking how they're doing, going to their house even sometimes to, you know, just ring the doorbell, make sure they're doing okay. It's one of those things I'm sure you've run into. Sometimes it's fantastic when you haven't seen somebody for a while because it means they're doing well, but sometimes it's the other end of it and they're really not doing well. So it's great to have that opportunity to really get out and see them where they're at. A few people at Blood Ties who work in specialized roles. So we have somebody who's, for example, a housing navigator to help people navigate the housing systems, which are really challenging here right now, as they are in many parts of the country, especially in some of these rural areas where there's lots of jobs, lots of people want to move here, but there's no housing for them. And so for the people who grew up here, it's even harder, especially if maybe they're on social assistance or something like that, where there's a lot of discrimination. We have another person who specializes is a wellness counselor. Their job is to just help people on their wellness journey, whatever that might look like, whether it's navigating health systems or learning to meditate or just needing somebody to talk to, they're there. We also have a couple of people who work in the communities predominantly. They offer a lot of the programming and services that Blood Ties does, but in the rural communities, of which there's probably between 12 and 15 rural communities in the Yukon, and they try to get to each one 
In a normal year, when there's no COVID, they try to get to each one at least a couple of times to offer whatever programming that the community is looking for. Sometimes I wish, though, there was, you know, three or four times as many people at work there. If there was, there'd be a lot more we could do for sure. If you are the type of person who takes your work home with you, you're going to find it really challenging, especially in a small town where you can't really escape it. In a big city, maybe you go home, you'll never ever see any of your clients or anything like that. You'll only see them at work. In a small town, you're going to see three of them every time you go to the grocery store. So making sure that you have those strong kind of boundaries and to do what you can to escape work when you're not working. So my practice when I found it challenging was a little ritual where I just visualize blood ties, the building that blood ties is housed in. If I find myself ruminating or talking about it, I look at one of the mountains and I visualize that blood ties, the building is sitting on top of that mountain and it's going to sit there tonight and I can go check on it in the morning, but for tonight it needs to sit there and I can move on with the evening. Most of the people in the Yukon will have had at least some experience through a loved or one or somebody that they care about who has struggled with substance use or maybe they've lost them to overdose. I think that goes a long way to helping people's understanding about substance use and to help to draw back some of that stigma. I tell people when I'm training them to work at Blood Ties or on the outreach van is that uh, we have to give people five-star service. So think about the best restaurant you've ever been in, what the service was like there. And that's the type of service we want to offer the people that come to use our services, right? Because we want to make sure that they're comfortable, that they had a good experience and that they are going to be willing to come back. Because if they're not willing to come back to use our services, something bad could happen. They may opt to share works or they may opt to not get a naloxone kit or something. That type of service can really go a long way, not only to cementing those relationships, but in the end, even saving lives. I think that's so important. How could a support worker build those important relationships? I think part of it for sure is uh, get yourself out in the community. Maybe not so much in Whitehorse, but definitely in the smaller communities. And we're talking about communities with less than a thousand. When they have community events, get out there, go meet the people, put your face out there, let people know who you are. That non-judgmental attitude, the willingness to kind of go that extra mile to think outside the box. If somebody goes from service to service and they keep getting the same answers, they're eventually just going to stop accessing those services. But if you can bring in some fresh ideas as a new person to the territory, don't uh, definitely, on the other hand of it, don't, there's a concept I heard recently called vansplaining of people from Vancouver coming up and telling us how to do our jobs because that's how they do it in Vancouver. Don't do that. <laughs> but at the same time, bring in some fresh and innovative ideas uh, and see where they go and see what uh, can happen. The government has recently promised a safe supply program. I think that can go a long way for sure. We don't have a very strong safe supply program at the moment, and I think there's a lot of people that will benefit from it. I would love to see more options for people for treatment. So the main treatment is run by the Yukon government, and for the people that it works for, it's great. But with any government systems, there's a lot of mistrust, especially in Indigenous communities, smaller communities, things like that. I would love to see more treatment options for people, more funding for on-the-land treatment, more funding to help the nations up here, First Nations, to develop the capacity to be able to offer treatment services that are culturally relevant and that will work for their citizens. Love to see the destigmatization of substance use. That is what's keeping people in the dark and keeping people from accessing the services that will really help to keep them alive and healthy if they're going to use substances. I can't stress how dangerous stigma is to people who use drugs. And 
what the benefits would be if we were able to wake up tomorrow and there was no longer any more stigma uh, towards substance use. So it sounds like that's that's kind of like your vision. If you could wake up tomorrow and have a white horse that you designed, you'd have a safe supply, you'd have a full menu of treatment options that are available, and there'd be no stigma. Like no one would be making any assumptions about anybody based on what they may or may not be doing. I think if we could do that, we would pretty much end the overdose crisis overnight. That was Jesse Whelan, who works as the harm reduction counselor at Blood Ties Four Direction Center in Whitehorse. So what are our main takeaways from today? Exploring opportunities to provide care virtually, for example, through video consultations, may help address both geography and confidentiality as key barriers to accessing substance use care in rural settings. People who use drugs often experience stigma and discrimination when accessing care. These negative interactions can be even more impactful for patients in rural and remote locations because they have fewer options when it comes to care providers. Building trust with our patients and fostering cultural safety in our clinics can help reduce barriers and make people feel more comfortable. Providing care for people who use drugs in remote and rural contexts often means working with fewer resources than those available in urban centers. Supports that people can have at home including take-home naloxone and the LifeGuard app, are important tools in preventing overdose. Thank you to our guests today, Kate Hodgson, Dr. Jeff Bardwell, and Jesse Whelan. You can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. Help us create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in the show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. The next episode of Addiction Practice Pod will focus on treatment and care for alcohol use disorder with co-hosts Dr. Roland Engelbrecht and David Ball. So stay tuned. This has been a production of the BC Center on Substance Use with the support of Cited Media. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors of BC. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. I'm Dr. Robert Fox, and thank you so much for listening.